0: Hello, you are listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. And today's episode is a recording from a webinar we held on August 17th, 2021. The topic of this webinar was the developing collapse of the Afghan government and military, Taliban's takeover of the country, and the immediate withdrawal of United States troops, State Department, personnel, citizens, and hundreds of Afghan refugees. Contributors to this webinar include Major General James spider Marks, Peter Churer, and Rachel Washburn. Some of the things we discuss are the strategic purpose of our presence in the country for over 20 years. What does stability look like for Afghanistan today? And how does this open the door for China and other superpowers? As always, Rachel does a great job of framing the conversation and leading our guests. I'm going to let her get started.
1: Welcome to Academy Security's latest geopolitical risk webinar. We're going to be discussing the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban's reconstitution as a governing body of Afghanistan. We're incredibly grateful for the time you've taken to spend with us today. And more importantly, if you're interested in this topic. As a veteran-owned firm founded by a post-9-11 veteran, staffed by nearly 50% veterans, and as a team who has made it its mission to train, hire, and mentor post-9-11 veterans, the news of this week has been incredibly troubling, heartbreaking, and not unsurprising for many of us. This is a topic that is in so many ways deeply personal to our firm. We have teammates who have supported the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, various teammates who have deployed through troop surges, through troop drawdowns, and teammates that have had loved ones and family members deployed to Afghanistan. While there may be no separation from the personal impact these events have had on many of us, today we hope to provide a helpful discussion and unique insights to the recent events. Most importantly, we wanna provide some context on the possible road forward and information as to how the new power dynamics in Afghanistan will impact broader geopolitical trends and risk. Today, I'm very proud to be joined by General Spider Marks, our Head of Geopolitical Strategy, and Peter Chur, our Head of Macro Strategy. This is going to be about a 30-minute long discussion, uh, obviously a lot of ground to cover in that time. But if you do have any questions, please type them into the Q&A portion at the bottom of your screen. Uh, as we begin, General Marks, I'd love for you to set the table for what has happened over the last three weeks. Uh, We got news alerts of different cities falling to Taliban, but really over the weekends where international and national attention became fixed on Afghanistan. Can you just give us uh, a real quick history of the last month's um, events and the Taliban's advance in Afghanistan as we withdrew?
2: Can do, Rachel. Thank you. Um, Before I start, let me let me thank Rachel. Let me thank the team. As Rachel indicated so incredibly well, this is immensely personal on a whole bunch of levels for our team. And Rachel, to you personally, you spent 24 months in Afghanistan. So thank you for your dedicated service there. It's just wonderful. Um, bear in mind that when the Biden administration took over in January, the Taliban was more powerful, had populated and had owned more provinces in Afghanistan than they did pre-911. In other words, there had been a tremendous resurgence of the Taliban, their presence, their ownership and their desire to take over Afghanistan as we had progressed through this two decades of combat. And it had fluctuated over the course of time. More significantly as we move forward to the events that we see today in this past weekend is the Taliban really started to increase the momentum at which it had really begun its provincial takeover. They accepted openly, they accepted an outside-in strategy where they were going to work their way around the periphery of Kabul gain strength, gain momentum. And in the interim, during that period, they would pick up a bunch of the American kit, the American equipment that had been left behind and was embedded in these Afghan military and security forces. They, very sadly, the Afghan military collapsed. It was a shame. The only glue that was holding the Afghan military together was the United States military specifically over the course of the last couple of years air power and precision fire that's what kept them together the Afghan military might be able to engage with a force might be able to engage a target but they weren't going to do it without an over-the-shoulder capability from the U.S. Air Force and from other kinds of capabilities that we uniquely bring to bear they departed They, the Afghan military departed and they melted, clearly melted away. And in many cases, tried to strike a deal with the Taliban because they knew the gig was up. They knew the Taliban ownership and leadership was inevitable. And so they tried to make sure that they were in a better place going forward. The speed at which that happened was unbelievable. Rachel used the word not surprising. And I think that's probably true, but it cascaded so quickly our heads were rocked back at the speed at which the Afghan military collapsed. And then two days ago, the Afghan president disappeared. An act of incredible cowardice. He disappears and he doesn't even announce it. He's just gone. The Taliban marches into Kabul. They take charge. They start owning the elements of governance. Whatever that means in a Taliban going forward government, they took control. The United States now is in the midst of this very chaotic departure I'm one not to criticize an ongoing military operation. That's exactly what's happening right now. So I'll keep my mouth shut about that. But I will tell you, young sailors, young soldiers, young Marines, and young airmen, always, always make their bosses look good. They will cover their bosses' ass when when the strategic leadership fails to make the appropriate decisions. Those young men and women will turn over their shoulders and look at their bosses and say, You guys figure this stuff out. We're here handling it. And that's exactly what's happening right now. The 82nd Airborne, along with some magnificent marine capabilities, and the Air Force is just magnificent, flowing in the air transport to get as many folks out as they can. That will take place and it'll it'll go well. The Taliban has said they won't interfere with the U.S. evacuation. That remains to be seen. The Taliban gains if they don't. They'd be foolish if they did interfere with the with the evacuation. We would crush them. We would absolutely crush them. So we've got another couple of weeks to try to get as many folks as out, many folks out as we can. There's been an arbitrary timeline established as the end of this month to get everybody out. Again, that's it should be conditions based. We know who should be evacuated. We should make sure that we can get as many of those folks as possible, even if we have to go beyond the 8:31, the the August 31st deadline. But that's a a decision that the president has to make. The Secretary of State and Defense will not get ahead of the president, nor should they. But I would hope there would be some leeway for us to make sure that we can accommodate and honor those folks that have really honored us and sacrificed so much. So that's kind of where we are right now. We can certainly get in more detail. Yeah, and before
1: we start really looking forward, I think it's important to really understand why we were there for 20 years, clearly those priorities don't go away overnight with our withdrawal and with the recent events of this weekend. Can you just discuss what was the strategic purpose of our presence there over 20 years um, and what what remains really important today in, you know, to those priorities?
2: Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, the, the mission going in, very simply, the mission when we invaded Afghanistan was to defeat the Taliban and to defeat Al Qaeda. Now, when you use verbs like that, that's military jargon. There are implied and specified tasks associated with that purpose. We defeated the Taliban, and we were able, with that defeat, to replace the Taliban. And we were there to help facilitate that transition, one of the implied tasks. We tried to defeat al-Qaeda. We scattered al-Qaeda. We didn't defeat them, but we scattered them, and they became um, ineffective. We then got caught up in the subsequent time after that immediate, if you remember how lightning fast that was back in 2001, we went in in October and we were complete, we completed that mission before Christmas. It's just absolutely phenomenal with a small, very precise force. And then we got caught up in the counter-terrorism mission. Then we got caught up in order to do counterterrorism well, we had to do counterinsurgency well. And then all of a sudden we're in like Mao taught us 70 plus years ago, in order to do counterinsurgency, you have to, and insurgency operations, you have to swim with the fish in the sea, which means you've got to bury yourself into the folds of the train. You've got to understand what the train's all about, what that human terrain looks like, what motivates villagers and different tribes, why they exist, why they do what they do. And that's what that's what Rachel did for two years in Afghanistan with special forces. You embed yourself, you figure out what's going on, you use that intelligence to your advantage. So we got caught up in this counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operation lasted way too long, and that turned into nation building. United States military should not be in the business of doing nation building. The Brits taught us that in the 19th century, Soviets taught us that in the 20th century, and we just learned that lesson in the 21st century. I hope we don't learn that lesson again. So the enduring requirement is to ensure that the ungoverned space, which has always defined Afghanistan, doesn't become a breeding ground for either Al Qaeda or ISIS or additional Taliban forces or other global terrorist organizations that now are doing backflips because Afghanistan is now available as a training ground to recruit, to train, to exist, to create their own little whatever, bastardized caliphate they wanna create and then try to export that. If they don't export it, fine if they try to export it and we see them beginning the process we need to have an unblinking eye consistent persistent stare in afghanistan so again we can we can just crush them we can bring fires in on those locations to make sure they don't have the ability to repeat a 9-11 that's why we care about afghanistan we cannot afford another 9-11.
1: So today, what does stability in the region look like? What will our strategic competitors do in this power vacuum? Uh, what do we need to be considering the broader geopolitical landscape?
2: Well, with the United States out of Afghanistan, I'll be the first one to acknowledge that there's going to be an increase in stability. Look the U.S presence has always been disruptive. So Pakistan is supporting our departure. I mean they're they're a partner in many cases, but we understand how we exist with partners and in many cases allies, but they're a partner, but they partner when it work, works to their advantage and our advantage as well. So they're a conditional partner. They are excited about our departure because now they don't have to worry about the FATA, that federally administered tribal area along the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. They're gonna spend all their time thinking about and how they're gonna work their relationship with India, two nuclear powers, Pakistan and India. Iran, on the other hand, is going to be equally excited, the fact that there isn't a US presence in Western and Southern Afghanistan. They don't have to worry about what that unstable, you know, that unstable border looks like. They, can sp- they see that as an increase in stability. China will exploit this, obviously, with uh, rare earth minerals in Afghanistan. They will try to exploit it, and they might be more successful. They might be the superpower in the shadow of the Brits and the Soviets and the United States that now really gains an upper hand because they go in with their debt diplomacy. Russia certainly will wanna take advantage as well. I, I'd love to now transition to what Peter's thoughts are in terms of can at least opening the door to China and certainly beyond Peter.
1: Yeah, Peter would absolutely wanna hear your points of view. You've discussed a lot about uh, China's One Belt, One Road Initiative and how what a different approach they take to international engagement and development. So what do you see from an international perspective?
3: Yeah, I'll take a step back. And I think when we had the Alaska Summit, General Marks and some of our other generals were one of the first to really notice a change in stance from Xi and China, where they really said for the first time, hey, our way is working. Your way isn't working. Our way is better than yours. And so I see this as a real opportunity for China to come in with their Belt and Road Initiative and attempt to extract resources from Afghanistan and potentially deeming a successful operation after we have just failed. There's very little place, and there's nowhere else in the world quite like that right now. Maybe a little bit in Venezuela where we are both kind of engaged, maybe a little bit in Iran where they try maybe and help Iranian oil make its way through. But this would be a real opportunity, I think, for China to come in and say, hey, we made things work in this country where the US didn't. So I think they are going to come in, they're gonna be fairly aggressive in how they do that that will enhance or increase this kind of global competition for rare earths and critical minerals. And if they happen to be successful, and I think they define success much differently than we do, right? They don't define success about what Afghanistan looks like while they're there, or what Afghanistan might look like after they leave. They will define success purely in are they able to extract the resources and wealth that they wanted to. And that to me, I think would be concerning. It would give China you know, a very strong position when they're talking to other countries. So I I think this has a lot of potential repercussions to how we think about the world and how everyone else thinks about China over the next year or two years.
1: And Peter, to your point around uh, how China plays in this, you know, anecdotally, I have, you know, felt veteran peers who actually help secure uh, Chinese development companies in parts of Afghanistan that were doing mining, uh, much like some of the operations they're doing in Pakistan that we've seen um, some recent violence against. It's it's interesting where that partnership has existed over 20 years of our involvement in Afghanistan and how um, it's viewed as a potential risk today. Uh, I think at a higher level, and when we talk about information operations and how important optics are and controlling a narrative um, in in this power play, uh, across the globe, how important that is. What do you view um, the risk to Taiwan, um, the risk to Ukraine by Russia, the risk to Taiwan by China, given you know one of the global superpowers taking a step back from an engagement in this fashion?
3: So I'll let Spider address maybe those, but I do think from a market perspective, this kind of power growth by China would aid and abet them kind of in terms of delinking from the global economy. So I think that's a change that we might have to face. I think it's something that they're already doing. And I think if Russia decides to flex their muscle, if China decides maybe they can do a little bit more with Taiwan, if Iran starts to be you know, a little bit more adventurous, these are all gonna be problems with global supply chains. I think they're gonna be inflationary. They're gonna be disruptive. And it continues some of this deglobalization, which is not really good for any of our economies. So, and at the same time, we are making our own steps towards you know, rebuilding manufacturing in the U.S. So if this does happen, I think there is a further delinking and decoupling of global economy. And companies are gonna have to look at that and address that as well as investors. But I'll let Spider turn to talk about the risks. But certainly as a market participant, I'm worried.
2: Yeah, you know, Peter, um, my view is that this is not necessarily, you know, the end of history 2.0, right? Francis Fukuyama told us when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, This is not the collapse of Pax Americana. This is a this is another slap um, in terms of failed U.S. presence in a folly that we should never have embraced as fully as we did. We can define that as hubris. We can define that as overstep. We can define that as we got lost. We got into Afghanistan and we got lost. We 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 forgot to drain the swamp to get rid of the alligators. Right? We just started fighting everything that was there. Um, so I'm I'm not concerned that this is the departure of the United States from the global stage, but you're absolutely correct. Our challenge has always been, we define success in very precise and I think uh, causal ways. In other words, we will enter in to assist a particular nation to help solve a particular challenge, but there are always conditions. Uh, There's always a quid associated with what we wanna try to do. Um, we want them to be a friend. We want to make sure that they're in our camp. The whole, We want to make sure they alter their human rights perspectives. They want to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We kind of have this laundry list of stuff they must do. Chinese, by comparison, walk in and say, we got money for you. You want our money? We're here for you. And it's a Faustian bargain and they sign up for it and they dig it and they're a okay with it and the chinese are too because they own them at that point. I mean the, the risk the chinese run and we and I've you and I've had this conversation is that they're we could default on the debt, right? And if everybody defaulted on their debt, China's sitting there holding a real crap bag, can't do a thing and they've overextended themselves. That hasn't happened and I'm not sanguine it's going to. I don't see the conditions where that's going to happen. So we have to continue to engage internationally so that we can make sure that the United States doesn't force itself, negotiate with itself and force itself over to the corner. Um, This is what's happening specifically in Afghanistan is a terrible tragedy on a whole bunch of personal and professional levels. We've acknowledged that. We can recover from that as long as we continue to work on those nations and those partners and create more partners where we can provide real value. If I was in Taiwan, would I be worried about the United States abandoning the Taiwan Relations Act because China now suddenly gets really aggressive? No, no, I wouldn't. Um, If I was in Ukraine, would the United States be walking away from potential Ukrainian membership in NATO, supportive for that? No, but we made a tremendous misstep in Afghanistan but I would not try to extract too many um, additional challenges that might come from that. Uh,
1: One of the questions from the audience actually touches on something we were discussing before the call went live. How is our decision to not have a permanent presence in Afghanistan different than other places where we do have a permanent presence, Japan, Korea, Germany?
2: Peter, can I jump on that and real quickly turn it to you? Because there's such a huge economic and financial component to that. In Germany, in Japan, in Korea, those nations had an identity, had a language, had a culture, they had been oppressed. They also wanted to advance out of this, this dark period that they had either chosen for themselves, Japan, Germany, or had been thrust upon them for millennia. Korean Peninsula, it's always been the bridge between Japan aggressiveness and Chinese aggressiveness. I mean, Koreans have just been slaughtered for millennia. So they raised a hand and said, look, we wanna move forward and we'd like your support. As a result of that support, where we stuck around, we stuck by them and were able to provide a secure blanket of both diplomatic, of all elements of power, diplomatic, economic and military support that allowed them to grow. And reestablish milestones upon which we evaluated our support and it worked. In Afghanistan, we've been there for 20 years, 20 years, and the Afghans have not been able to stand up. There is a difference, a significant difference. I mean, look at, I, I've spent a lot of my time on the Korean Peninsula When you look at what Korea looked like in the mid 1950s following the war, it was completely leveled, horrible, everything burned out. Go back 20 years later in the 70s, progress was phenomenal. You go back to Korea to now and everybody knows it. It's absolutely mind boggling what the Koreans have been able to achieve, the Japanese as well, the Germans as well. It was just phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. 20 years, 20 years after we've been in Afghanistan, We have the departure of the military, the collapse of the government, the president fleeing to Tajikistan. It's it's embarrassing. Minimally, it's embarrassing. It's a complete um, departure and turning your back on those in Afghanistan that thought there might be a new future. There isn't as of today.
3: Yeah, I think what I would add, Spider, is to me, this is almost where we can tie two threads together. One thread really starts with the pandemic where I think there was this realization about our supply chains and where we're getting materials from. And that maybe we have to address those and they have to either move more domestically or whether they have to at least be with our closer friends and allies. And, you know, we've talked often about antibiotics in the U.S. military, how much of the antibiotics from the U.S. military come from China. And you mentioned the word I always butcher, antimony. I think we're, you know, at the tips of various missiles and weapon heads it all comes from china right now we haven't opened a mind in the u.s for something as critical as that so as we have this friction i think this is just another space where that thread starts to tie together that as we as a nation as a country start looking at this i think we are going to have to look at our supply chains and who we do business with and some level of comfort and safety might have to play a bigger role in that and i think we're going to see not only you know i talk a lot about buy america i know president biden has already initiated some buy american projects where the u.s military or medicare is going to spend more on american but i think more broadly it's going to be close allies people we can trust and as we look at supply chains, i think that fits in exactly with what you have just been talking about where we have a presence maintain a presence and is a great presence and where we're starting to question what that presence does and where we should be and why we want to be there so i think those two threads are going to shape how our economy looks going forward from a supply chain perspective
2: that's right and i hope buy america suddenly doesn't become "Bye america Joe.
3: no and i think it has to include just a more well thought out plan and you know i think places like mexico can be a real benefit right we're close neighbors places like canada canadian so you no know, bias but i think there's a lot that can be done but this discussion about where we have bases and not right business follows the flag and maybe we planted our flag in places we don't want it but that business should go to where the flag is and is wanted.
2: It's exactly correct. I, you know, the United States has this growing relationship um, with the Quad. You know, India, Japan, United States, and Australia, with a with a clear objective of <laughs> establishing. I mean, and that's and those are two of the world's largest democracies. <laughs> India and the United States are number one and number two, um, with a clear perspective of look, we can we can have we can enjoy. Um, strong relationships, strong economic growth, and we can provide security. I would see that there would be an increase in our engagement in organizations like that. And I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if we had, if we planted a flag at the invitation of the Indian government. We've always had a spotty relationship with Pakistan. We've had an increasingly strong relation with India, world's long, largest democracy, a billion people, incredible economic energy you know in vitality why would we not have an increasing presence there on the border of where we've been for the last 20 years not getting it right that would probably be awesome
1: yeah uh one or two more questions from the audience i want to pose to you um with the rapid advance of the Taliban and we saw lots of pictures of them taking over the weapons and the equipment that the U.S. had left there any concern about maybe sensitive equipment or information being left behind um, that could be used to their advantage and then I guess more broadly uh, what does a Taliban government in 2021 look like is it going to be as brutal have they um, decided to work with some international norms after their um, you know, involvement in the negotiations. You know, what is your view of, first, the, the threat of the Taliban to our national interests and what that government may look like moving forward?
2: Yeah, I think, um, very quickly, I think the kit we left behind, for the most part, if it was embedded, and it was in the Afghan military, it's been stripped of sensitive equipment. But that doesn't mean they're not going to reverse engineer, and that doesn't mean that thing's not going to end up in China, and it doesn't mean that technology is not going to be available elsewhere. I think at the very highest levels, there, there probably is some risk. I know there are efforts that are routinely in place and rehearsed to get rid of classified things, as you're... Might might have to evacuate or depart more frequent or more quickly than you would expect. I'm I'm hopeful that that took place, but I, I am I am certain that there will be some leakage of some classified material that just simply didn't get handled or had been stolen in advance. Uh, to your second part of the question, I think the Taliban 2.0 is going to look like Taliban OG. I don't think there's going to be any difference between the Taliban we saw from 96 to 2001 and the Taliban we see today. There's no reason for us to believe that, despite the happy face that they're putting on right now, because they need to. They wanna get some international support. Behavior over time will be the bellwether as to whether it's gonna happen. I don't see it happening. I don't see a difference. I think there will be more similarities than there will be differences.
1: Peter another question from the audience do you think the buy American plan could disrupt efficiency of global capital distribution and does the United States government government need to offer uh, U.S. companies financial incentives to offset the cost of disrupting those current supply chains
3: yeah and I think um, that's one reason we've been part of you know kind of viewing the this world as inflationary that I think some of this is going to come back and when you look at where they're starting, right? We're starting with U.S. government spending, so it'll be defense spending where they'll impose a higher buy American. Um, it will be on healthcare and Medicaid spending. And if you think about it, it kind of makes perfect sense. We currently seem not to care as much about taking on debt that's cheap. So if the government starts overspending a little bit for that, and then I think we will see um, support for supply chain activity. We will see some elements of stimulus and tax breaks to help bring that stuff on shore. again, I don't expect to see heavy manufacturing. We're not gonna to go to, you know, big chimneys everywhere. I think it's gonna be relatively light, heavily automated manufacturing. So I think the big resources demand is gonna be for logistics, people can help with that. But I do see that as inflationary. I see job growth coming. And I see it might not be quite what was traditionally middle class or middle tier management might be a step below that, but there will be this, you know, real opportunity, I think, as that comes, it is going to be expensive. Some of this is going to get pushed through with government support. Some of it's going to be done directly by government spending. And then the other part, and I think this is what's really different is as people can phrase some of this as being sustainable, right? Hey, we're taking a supply chain back from a place that we don't like how they treat their people, or maybe there's too much pollution in that region. Right? I think now we're living in an age where if you took on say 10 cents of cost for making your process or your product more sustainable, you can probably pass on seven cents of that, six, seven cents to the consumer. So the consumer starts bearing that cost because the consumer is very sensitive about these and wants those products. And then the other part is, as ESG investing takes foothold, your PE ratio may go up. So you might have slightly smaller earnings, but if your stock price goes up because your process is deemed as more sustainable and you attract a different type of investor or your product is deemed more sustainable, attracts a different type of investor. I don't think it's a zero sum game right now from that perspective for companies. So that's gonna make this occur with a greater degree of frequency and less government support than I think it would have taken three or four years ago when ESG wasn't on the top of everyone's mind. And a lot of that was definitely driven forward even by the pandemic, but these are all kind of coalescing into, I think it's a multi-year plan and it's going to be successful, but it is going to be inflationary.
1: Thank you, Peter. Um, and with that, General Marks, any closing comments? Um, you know, the drawdown began in 2014, but uh, in many ways it felt like the closing of the war happened overnight. Um, clearly, we're not at the end of it. There's uh, still a lot of work to be done, still a lot of risk that our troops are taking with the recent deployment of the 6,000 um, to help secure the airport. But any closing remarks before we um, end today's webinar?
2: Well, thanks, Rachel. Um, I would say our service members will make us proud. They they will execute this evacuation with incredible professionalism and it will go smoothly. There will be bumps. We can expect that. I hope what we're seeing is this might simply be the departure this should be just the departure of US presence from Afghanistan but certainly not from the region. We've created of course of 20 years lasting relationships. We've identified those that um can be partners we've identified them we need to be able to sustain them we've also gotten a better bead on those that really want to do us harm we've got a clear picture of what their intentions are too so i see i at least the upside in my mind is we may be departing afghanistan but not the region
1: well as peter said so well business does follow the flag and our team is really equipped to look beyond the horizon where risks exist and where opportunity exists in the same. So I want to thank everyone for joining our call today. We truly appreciate the time you spent with us. Uh, There are some questions in the queue that did not get answered. We will follow up, but if as the news develops, as you're reading things beyond the topic of Afghanistan, if you would like some insights from our team, please reach out to your coverage officer or at info at academysecurities.com. And we look forward to answering your questions and being a helpful partner. Uh, Have a great afternoon and a great week.
0: Thank you, Rachel, Major General spider Marks, Peter Chair, for your contributions to a very informative conversation. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time today. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you would like to engage with our geopolitical or macro strategy group directly, please email us at info at I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.